This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. After last week's trip around the state, this week we are staying close to home with visits to two theatre productions, one outdoors, one indoors and two art galleries. One with a name that goes back 60 years and the other which has just had a name change. The plays run the gamut from an almost forgotten early 20th century painter, The Call of Wolves and musical vignettes of Love and Loss. And in the art world, we take a peek at a collection of works by a mid-century master that have been tucked away for decades, plus a chance to acquire a work by many well-known local artists and support an organisation which has been promoting artists for more than half a century. Ready? Here we go. Greenhouse Theatre Project wraps up its 2021 season this weekend with an outdoor performance of two one-act plays. One brand new called Hilma, written by Julia Varlin, about the Swedish artist and mystic Hilma of Klint, whose incredible abstract expressionist artworks all but vanished from the art history of the 20th century. And the other called Wolf Play, written in 2012 by film and TV writer Claire Keechel, which explores a small town's ancient and savage annual ritual that makes one woman question her role as the perfect wife and mother. Both plays are short, will be performed alongside servings of hot apple cider and directed, acted and overseen by Greenhouse Theatre Project's founder and executive director Elizabeth Braden Palmieri, who is here with me this evening along with the playwright of Hilma, Julia Valen. Hello, Elizabeth and Julia. Hi, Diana. Hello. Thank you for having us. I feel like we could spend our entire time together talking about the artistic and mystic talent of Hilma of Clint, mm-hmm. who seemed to suddenly loom out of virtual obscurity to most of us last year when a new documentary called Beyond the Visible was released into our pandemic-limited world. But before we fall into the rabbit hole of her life, Elizabeth, two plays, both with women questioning their perception of the world around them. What made you put these two plays into one billing? Hmm. That's a great question, Diana, as usual. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, Greenhouse is a super woman-centered organization and company and founded by Emily Adams and myself, a fellow Brit, right? And I think, you know, when she and I began the company, it was always important to us to highlight women's stories And then eventually women playwrights became a big part of this one act series that we do every year. It doesn't happen every year that we have two female playwrights. But this year, I was really moved to tell certain kind of stories. And I actually reached out to Julia (laughs) and asked her because, you know, people who know Greenhouse know Julia. She's been working with us in various capacities over the last couple years as an actor and as a playwright. But this time around, I was curious to have her pen something with a woman's voice. I was nudging her to maybe think about a one-woman piece. And then she said, well, I've actually been working on something about Hilma off Clint. And it was like, 
a bell went off in my head because I was like, Hilma, Hilma off Clint, Hilma off Clint. Why do I know this name? And um, I, I think that that's how it is for a lot of people. Either they, like you said, she is completely obscure, but it's like you hear the name and you're like, I, I know I've heard that. And of course I had heard that because I had read an article in the New York Times when she had the retrospective at the Guggenheim a couple mm. years ago. And then I just started asking everyone I knew if they had actually seen that. And I had um, Amanda Hinnett, who's the president of Greenhouse Board. She had seen that exhibit and a handful of other friends around here. So I had had some conversations, including Julia, which I'm sure she'll talk about as well. So I knew immediately, I, I trusted Julia. Whatever she was going for with this Hilma play, I was there for it. Oh, I'm flattered. <laughs> yeah. And then the other playwright, um, I actually reached out. I have a friend She's based in Brooklyn. She's a writer and an actor, and her name is Lindsay Trout Hughes. And I asked her as well to pen something. And she, of course, needed a little bit more time because I put both <laughs> of you on the spot. I was like, yeah, it's two months away. <laughs> but she she will create something for us in the future. But she said, I have this amazing friend who's uber talented, and she has this play that I think would just be perfect to perform in the setting in which you're hoping to do. And so she sent me Wolf Play, and I fell in love with that one. And I just thought these two plays side by side, telling these women's stories was a little too good to be true. So that set me off on the path that we're on. So, Julia, tell me about Hilma, your introduction to her. She's an unexplored artist of the 20th century, mm -hmm. partly because she stipulated that her artwork should not be shown for at least 20 years after her death, which was in 1944. But then everybody forgot about her until a retrospective happened in 1986. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, the art world has always favoured male artists. So there's also that. But there's so much more to her than her art. So tell me your story of how you came upon Hilma. I went to a Waldorf school when I was younger, which in a nutshell is a method of education developed out of a spiritual philosophy called anthroposophy, which was created by a man named Rudolf Steiner. And I had thought in the past about writing in some way about anthroposophy, but I didn't know exactly how or what angle or what particularly interested me. And then I remembered... Hilma of Clint, whose exhibit I had seen at the Guggenheim in 2018. And she was loosely connected with Anthroposophy and Steiner. And then the more I learned about her, the more I loved her story. And so I just started focusing on her. Um, she had a connection with the divine and painted as a conduit, essentially, for a few specific angels that she had a connection with. And as you said, she had a hard time getting Sweden at the time to connect with her work. They were really more into landscapes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she was a classically trained painter, which is why she was able to segue into the abstract, I think, so, so well. Um, but that's what hooked me into her. Her art, for people who haven't seen it, is incredibly 
luminous and abstract, but she predates the male abstract expressionist artists by many years, yet mm -hmm. they are credited with inventing this art genre of abstract expressionism, whereas she was really doing it first. Yep. But the mystic side of her is as interesting as the artistic side of her. And without giving too much away, tell us a little bit about the play. I mean, you do center it around I don't know whether it was a real or an invented meeting with Rudolf Steiner. Yes, <laughs> without giving anything away. Right, right, right. Yes, it was real. So I've been thinking about her. I've been working on an idea for a TV show. And then Liz asked me to write a play, which at first I thought, can I do this? <laughs> and then it turned out that I really appreciated the assignment and worked pretty well like under that amount of not super pressure, but some pressure, but it definitely inspired me to create. Um, so what I had to do for a short play was, because she had a long and expansive life, was pick one moment and center the piece around that. And so I thought about a few key moments in her life, but this was one of them. In 1908, she had a meeting with Rudolf Steiner, who, as I mentioned, founded this spiritual philosophy called Anthroposophy. And she had heard about him because he was coming into prominence around the time and giving talks. And I don't know if it specifically says anywhere that she heard him speak, but it's certainly possible. And she heard about his spiritual ideas and thought, oh my goodness, this is really similar to what I'm painting about, to what the angels are telling me. I think this man will understand my paintings because she'd been painting these in this abstract way for some years and nobody was connecting with it. And so she was really excited to meet Rudolf Steiner. So she traveled to Dornach, Switzerland in 1908 and took a meeting with Steiner. And I've actually been there to, to Dornach. And so it was kind of exciting to write about a place that I'd been. So, Elizabeth, you are directing Julia's play, Hilma, and you are acting in the Wolf play. H how do you decide what you want to direct and what you want to act in? It seems like both roles are really perfect for you. <laughs> I know Julia was like, well, I actually asked Julia first. I'm like, Julia, will you come down and perform it? And she's like, oh, I'm working on another. I'm performing in something else right now. And I was like, ow. Rats. Um, <laughs> it's absolutely like the the kind of role that I would would want to take on. But um, I also just really wanted to direct it and allow myself to divulge and dig into her life and do some dramaturgy and some some nerding mm -hmm. the way that I like to do with these characters, these real life characters. Um, and so. Fortunately, I have a wonderful intern right now, an actor. She's in her final year at Stevens College. She was a student of mine a couple of years ago, and uh, she's working with Greenhouse all year. And I felt like this would be a great coming out role for her for Greenhouse. And so it's been a total joy to be able to direct her in this piece. And she is just obsessed with Hilma as well. And so how can you not be? I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's, yeah. So that's been really great. Also, I usually do just bite off more than I can chew. I mean, everyone who knows me knows that that's just like my 
my huge. <laughs> and uh, I'm kind of in this place right now in my life where I'm like, maybe less is more. I don't know. So I decided that I, I was going to just perform in one piece and and then go ahead and direct this one. And and it's been it's been great. And and Wolf Play is it's also a piece that I am I just absolutely associate with in a lot of ways. <laughs> I noticed that when I read it. I thought this is so Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, as a woman of a certain age, you know, living in in our world right now, um, I am a mother, I am a wife, I'm like all these things. I'm an artist and uh and I'm feeling like I'm constantly trying to find my way and 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 what I'm supposed to really be doing here. And I just felt like I connected big time with Juliet. And so I really wanted to allow myself to pour into her. And I wasn't sure if I would be able to give myself as a performer equally to both of those roles to, at the same time together. So tell us a little bit about Wolf Play so that we do it as much service as we've done Hilma. Give us a little potted story. Honestly, I've been giving Hilma way more press. And we're actually doing a panel discussion this Sunday at Orr Street at 11, which Julie is going to come down and, and be on. Um, I have a panel of like fabulous, knowledgeable women who are going to get to talk about Hilma. So I have been promoting that a little bit more just because it is such a fascinating topic. She's a fascinating topic. And I also just want to expose her more because, you know, the more people that know, the the cooler people they'll be in the world. But yeah, Wolf Play, this other piece um, that Ian Sobule and I are performing in together it's basically not to give too much away said enough in that setup but it's uh this this town celebrates something called the running each year and it may correlate with a full moon <laughs> and it may have something to do with wolves so there's there's just something really fascinating about the story and it it also has kind of a mystical side to it so it connected with the hilma piece as well and i thought you know october these two plays are perfect for they're not too spooky but they're just kind of a perfect amount of um mysticism to entice people you know just spooky enough just spooky enough. <laughs> <laughs> i hadn't thought of the halloween connection but yes just spooky enough and they're both going to be performed at chimeric motion pictures in the north village Arts district outside and you're always very specific about how you choose locations so tell me what it was quickly about this location that made you want to do these two plays there yeah so the garage is kind of what got me so it's this massive garage door so the the actors are actually just inside this garage cavity and the audience is out in the parking lot and also, I'm just trying to stick with this whole COVID season. I've been keeping all of my productions outdoors, trying to keep them safe, you know, for people who are not yet comfortable to be in indoor spaces. So it's it's been tricky sometimes, you know, and you worry about weather and stuff like that. But this is this is our last outdoor play, hopefully for a while. <laughs> but we're excited about it. It'll be great. It'll be very fall festive feeling. We'll have, uh, like you said, hot apple cider. Maxito Lindo will be performing pre-show and intermission music live. So that'll be really fun. And I'm just hoping that uh, 
people bundle up and come on out for a good time. Perfect. Well, Greenhouse Theatre Project's Urban One Act will be performed outside at Chimeric Motion Pictures in the North Village Arts District at 300 St. James Street tonight, tomorrow and Saturday at 7.30. But unless you run, you're going to be too late for tonight. Plus, as Elizabeth said, there is a panel discussion about Hilma this coming Sunday at Fretboard at 11.30, right, Elizabeth? It's actually at Or Street Studios at 11 a.m., but we will have fretboard coffee and Goldie's bagels. So okay. you, were, you were on the right track there. <laughs> okay. Seating is on a first-come basis, but there is ample standing room. And you can find out more at greenhousetp.org. And Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri and Julia Varnum, thank you for the insights and the chat. Thank, thank you, Diana. Diana. Next week, the second annual Patrons Party will take place at the Columbia Art League, just one of the many stellar and engaging ideas that its executive director, Kelsey Hammond, has added to Cal's annual calendar. And one of the many reasons that I also get to congratulate her for receiving an honourable mention at this year's Impact Como Awards for being one of the city's most impactful executive directors. (laughs) Kelsey is here to explain how the patrons party works. Hello, Kelsey. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Well, first of all, congratulations on your award. Do you keep your awards next to your desk for days when you think, am I doing this right? (laughs) Or do you take them home so that you can point them out to your family when you need to remind them that you are, in fact, fabulous? Well, they are by my desk, but they're sort of, and this sounds terrible, and I am very grateful, but they're sort of under my desk right now with a bunch (laughs) of other framed things that are sort of need to be put places. So, um, Yes, the people at home are just happy that I show up and help them do everything. So they're fine. They know I'm a queen. It's all right. Okay, and that's good. Um, That's good. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. They're just happy when I'm able to come home, let's be honest. Um, It's very, so nice to be nominated and recognized. And also the company that I was in was incredible. And I'm so glad, and this sounds maybe a little strange, that I did not win because the two other women who were nominated in that category head up the food bank and also True North, which is the domestic violence shelter. So I was very, very happy that I was not the one receiving the actual final award. It's nice to be um, in good company, though, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. <laughs> they do wonderful work. So that was very good. Very good. So the Patrons Party is a chance for artists to help fundraise for the gallery and a way for patrons to support what you do. So tell us how it all works. So this idea is actually based off of something that they do in Virginia at a place that, of course, has escaped my memory in just the last three seconds. The Torpedo Factory. There it is. Thank you so much. (laughs) And so artists donate an artwork. And then we just ask that it be $150 value that they would normally sell it for or more. Some people make things for this particular show. But most people are probably going through some things that they've had for a while that didn't sell initially when they first exhibited it or it's been on their website for a while and hasn't sold or or something like that. So it's not that it's not good or it's not great or whatever, but it just didn't hit the right Mm. person at the right time that's framed and ready to go. So we don't want it to be a burden on the artist to have to create a new thing every time we ask for a donation. But it's something that they have and then they donate and then we have as many tickets as we have art to give away. And the patrons buy the ticket. So they buy a $150 ticket. And this year, we're able to actually do how we sort of initially thought of this idea, but then in pandemic, we're not able to do, which is to have a party and have the selection process of the artwork. So on Monday, October 25th, will be the 
celebration party where everyone will get to see the artwork and come in and make their top 10 lists. So they make a list of the top 10 pieces they'd want to take home. And then we actually meet over Zoom for them to select the artwork so they can marinate a little bit more on the artwork. They can think about it a little bit more. And then we can have a a private one-on-one time with me to actually select the work. So it kind of works out in like a 10-minute slot where they, they come in on Zoom and then we kind of go around the gallery or they say, oh, yep, I still want this one because they've been looking online to see what has sold already. So it's just really fun. It, it's the, the twist, of course, is that the people who are selecting artwork, it's not first come, first serve. It is me randomly generating numbers. So you could be number one or you could be number 74. Mm. But either way, you're going to get something you love. And in fact, last year, everybody got something on their top 10 list. There wasn't one person who was like, oh, man. All right, I guess I'll take this. Everyone was like, yes, I still got something on my list in the upper top five even. So wow, not surprising, but really it turned out just right. I always think that everybody wants the same 10 artworks. Yeah. <laughs> so that is kind of surprising that I know the last person was like, oh my goodness, this is still available. Yes, it absolutely is true. And I think part of it is because it's every time it surprises me, but it is true every single time. What I think is the best is not what the juror thinks is the best, mm-hmm. is not what the art buyers think is the best, because we all come with our own interests, likes, and feelings about things, weirdly enough. So we're, we as art purchasers or people who just have eyeballs are different enough that we all see something that we like from different pieces. And it's, it's really, really cool. It just shows you how particular we all are in our, our own likes and dislikes and stuff. So... It was really nice to see that nobody was like, man, this sucks. Crying at the end, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the cost of a patron's party ticket is $150. And the the value of the works, as you say, is $150 or more. Correct. But looking through the website, you definitely have works that are way north of $150, right? Hi, her name is Susan Taylor Glasgow. (laughs) And she donated artwork, so... Yeah, we do. We have one of her glitter paintings, which is incredible. And I don't even think I know what the value is, but it is way, way, way north of 150. So we understand how lucky we are that we were able to use that for this kind of event. And I think that that's the thing that always surprises me, too, is that it's not a super hard ask for most artists. I do. I will say that some artists are like, you know, I already donate a lot, so I'm not going to. And I say, of course, like, I completely understand Because artists are asked to donate work all the time, and it's not super fair to them. So this is pretty much the one time we're asking for artists to donate something, and then we let them know by putting it on our calendar that it's going to come this year, you know, and if people have time and have something they can donate, that we will take it. So the donations this year are a little bit less than last year, but that's okay. I feel like this year, everything's been a little bit less, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) people are just still trying to find their equilibrium and stuff. So but it's such a good show. We just hung it up and put finishing touches on it on Monday and opened yesterday. So the show is actually open to the public also until the 29th, October 29th. And tickets, when we sell out, they'll sell out. So if, if there are still tickets available after the party on the 25th, you can still buy tickets because the art selection isn't actually until the 30th. Right. And the ticket is really for a piece of art. Correct. And if there's yeah. two of you that want to come to the party, you're not paying three hundred dollars. No. You pay just an extra twenty five. So really, that's the cost of the party, and the exactly. rest is yes. you get a piece of art for it. Are they all the same? Well, not same, but are they all mostly small, or do they really vary in size? 
I would say overall this show is smaller than last year's show overall, but I think that that fits more with what people want to play with, if that makes sense, you know, because we've thrown the twist in there, right? And so I think that people are sort of like, well, I could choose anything small, but if I had to choose something really big, you know, and it was sort of not the one I loved the most, that's like a harder sell for me, you know, but if it's something small that I like a lot, then that's better. In other words, if you don't get your number one, you're still pretty pleased that you got something for $150 because that's a very low price, I think, for an original artwork. Right. But Carrie Hearth is donating two of her pieces and they're both very large. And Susan's litter painting is big. <laughs> it's very big. There's a Pat Gaines and it's also pretty big. So there are a couple larger pieces that sort of anchor. But on the whole, I'd say everything else is between 16 by 20 and 8 by 10, somewhere in there. But come by the gallery because it's a beautiful show. Weirdly, it all works really well together. I have this corner that's all like crazy, awesome colors that look fabulous together. (laughs) Some day glow colors in there that you're like, yeah, I can see that in my house. You know, like things that look pretty cool. So, (laughs) But you need to buy more than one ticket if you want to get more than one. Yes. In fact, we had one person last year who bought four tickets because she's like, well, I'm just going to do this for presents for my family. And she's like, or maybe I'll let them choose. And then... You know, they were all asleep or whatever when her time was to choose art. And she was like, great, I'm just choosing these for myself. And I was like, awesome. (laughs) So talking about those Zoom chats, the choosing the art time, I know last year you said that my own in-laws gave you a little tour of their artwork in their house during your selection chat. So were there some other lovely moments in your Zoom chats last year? Yeah, you know, I was still fairly new as the director and, um, it was so nice to sort of be invited into people's homes. Like, and Zoom was still kind of a new thing. We were all figuring out how that worked. And it feels like a million years ago. And it was only a year ago. But, um, but yeah, it, there were a couple there, you know, there's like sleepy faces and, um, and people who are like, I did not put on makeup for this. And I'm like, no, you're, you shouldn't. I'm in your home, you know? So I think there was a lot of realness that happened. And, um, and yeah, other people, there were not just not just uh, Joni and John, but other folks showed me some of the art that they have, they love, and people had their kids with them who were helping them choose, which was fun. And these Zoom dates are around Halloween, so if anyone has kids and they or if they want to dress up in costumes, I'm all for it. <laughs> I say make it as weird as possible. Will you be in costume? Well, maybe not. We'll see. Maybe I'll have <laughs> some like cat ears or something on. You never know. <laughs> it's funny that last year was a bit of a baptism by fire because it was the year you introduced it, and then almost immediately, like everything shut down, and you had to work out how to make it work. But these Zoom chats, it seems like in some ways, having to rethink the event maybe made us a little better a little more interesting was the pandemic almost a weird silver lining with the patrons party? <laughs> I really think it was I mean partly too because it was a time when we all were looking at our pocketbooks and thinking oh yeah I mean of course I can order more books at that bookstore or yes of course I can eat out more so I can help the restaurant and yes I can do this more you know it was sort of like all hands in what can we do to help support our local nonprofits and local businesses and things and and it's not that people aren't doing that now but they just aren't doing it as much and so So it feels a little, I mean, even donations and stuff, there's a big difference in how it was than last year. And obviously, I think that kind of makes sense. I will say that nonprofits and small businesses are still struggling. (laughs) And so it's not like that's all gone away. So weirdly, yeah, the pandemic was very good for the patron party. And that I think more people were kind of sitting around because we were closed down. So people were like, yeah, here we are. Before we close, I just wanted to ask you quickly about this month's show in the South Gallery featuring the works of Pam Gaynor and Hannah Reeves called Meaning and Memory. I know it's only on for a couple more weeks, but tell us quickly about that show. 
so Hannah and Pam are, well, Pam was a former board member and Hannah's a current board member. They both work with textiles and fabric and fibers in their work. But somehow, I can't remember exactly how they got paired together, but they did. And I think that they talked about it and then kind of went to their separate corners and made work and came back. And what you have is a, actually a very cohesive show in thought and work that looks very different from each other, but is also really relatable, which is very weird when that happens. So they're talking about the history of the fibers in your life, meaning the, the clothing, the cloth, the things that you've used over and over, how quilts get made using these leftover pieces of fabric that you maybe a dress that you wore a long time ago, or the tradition of that fabric holds, holds meaning, it holds memory, it holds all these things that you've lived through kind of the same way that I would argue that your, your body does, you know, so it becomes like a relic of a, of a history of lived experience that you can then use to keep you warm, or you can use to wash your dishes, you know, it's, a, it's something that is usable. So that's very interesting. Um, the statement is really good. The work is really good. It's really powerful when you're in there. And, and I really challenge people to find how Pam's pieces relate to Hannah's pieces, because it's totally there, even though the color schemes are different. So it's a really good show. I think people can look longer at that show because you feel it the longer you're in the room, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, the Columbia Art League's Patrons Preview Art Party is this coming Monday, the 25th of October from 6 to 8. The in-person party will be following COVID precautions with masks required when you are not eating or sipping. And the Missouri Theatre Lobby will also be part of the party space so that people can spread out. You can find out more about the event and see the works that will be in the show online at columbiaartleague.org forward slash patrons hyphen party. And if you want to see the Pam Gainer and Hannah Reeves Meaning and Memory Show. You only have until next Wednesday, October the 27th, I believe. Yes. Kelsey Hammond, Executive Director of the Columbia Art League. Thanks, as always, for another cozy fireside chat. Thank you so much. Always enjoyable. Although you may not recognise the names Candor and Ebb, if you have been paying even an iota of attention to the musicals of the 20th century, you have probably heard of Cabaret and Chicago, both of which were created by John Candor and Fred Ebb. The pair collaborated together for over 40 years, creating a music for a string of Broadway hits and some notable movies, including Funny Lady, starring Barbara Streisand, and New York, New York, the title song of which was made famous, of course, by Frank Sinatra. And back in 1991, a choreographer, Susan Stroman, and a director, Scott Ellis, teamed up with a librettist, David Thompson, to put together a musical review showcasing some of the songs of Candor and Ebb in a show called And the World world goes round. And that show is opening on the stage of Stevens College's Mecklenburg Playhouse this weekend, directed by my next guest this evening, the Dean of the Stevens Conservatory for the Performing Arts and former Broadway actor Jennifer Hemphill. Welcome back to the show, Jennifer. It's been a while. It has been a while. Thank you so much for having me back. So let's start with an overview of And the World Goes Round. Tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. It is a celebration of the music of Candor and Ebb, and it really showcases a good many of their most popular songs and also, you know, digs some up from the less popular shows. And those are equally fun. They have such a unique writing style, a duplicitous writing style, sort of 
the idea that the lyrics have a lot of depth, but oftentimes the um, orchestrations add a lot of levity. So you've got this beautiful polarity going on and playing. And um, this review really showcases the depth and breadth of their work. And so there's comedy in it, there's romance, there's drama, there's love, and there's loss, and there's five individuals, is it, that we follow through their through their lives and their loves and their day-to-day activities? Yes, in this version, we actually have seven. Oh. So a little bit more to investigate. But yes, the highs and lows and the, the misses and the hits and all set to these wonderful tunes. It feels a little bit like, and I haven't seen it, so you can correct me here, but it feels a little bit like a cross between the vignette show that you just staged a couple of weeks ago, Almost Main, which is a series of vignettes kind of linked together, and also Mamma Mia, in that it's taking a series of songs and then creating stories around them. Is that kind of accurate? You have hit the nail on the head. That is exactly <laughs> right. It, you know, it really is a series of vignettes. Um, there's a loose through line and... Um, Each character does have a bit of an arc. Um, Some are more prominent than others, but everybody's got their moment to shine. And oftentimes we break the fourth wall in sort of a Brechtian fashion, which adds another fun element to it. And oftentimes the the actors are engaged in proper scene work, you know, uh, within the world of the play. So we're really sort of crossing the spectrum here. You wrote in an email to me that you have taken the show in a very different direction, which sounds intriguing. What are your innovations? Yes, you know, we've we've set the show in a bar, which is great fun. And we've set the show on December the 24th of 2019. And um, the actors wind up in this bar. They start out as strangers. And then as the night progresses, um, they learn a little bit more about each other. And so it, it gives a, a bit of a unique arc to a, a wonderful piece. Why December the 24th, 2019? Well, you know, when I decided to do it in a bar, I thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder what day people most find themselves in a bar by themselves. And I think that it's during the holidays. <laughs> and, and, you know, what happens when you're displaced or you can't get home or you choose not to get home or, or there isn't maybe a home in some cases? Where do you turn for comfort? And I think many people of different walks of life um, turn to, to bars, the comfort of a bar. And so that was the inspiration behind it. I don't know if I had been watching, you know, a rerun of Cheers or something that inspired me and I... <laughs> <laughs> didn't realize it. It's possible. But um, also, I was also very much inspired by the bars in New York City that don't have any signage out front. There are many bars in, in the city that are unmarked, and you have to know they exist. And you oftentimes go up a staircase and open the door, and then you're in this wonderful, magical place that... Um, is not known to tourists in particular. And so I thought, well, that would be really fun. So not only is it a bar, but it's an unmarked bar. And let's see what ensues. So tell us about a couple of the vignettes that speak to you the most. Gosh, yeah. You know, there's a beautiful moment um, of a trio. It's actually a quartet in this production called Isn't It Better? And that is just a wonderful, wonderful moment where... The actors have an opportunity to 
really play the hope or play the, I guess, the unraveling of this is where we are. And, and yes, this is definitely better than that other thing. And I think that's such a universal um, idea that we as humans, <laughs> we as humans grapple with the idea of what was, what we thought was, what is, what might be, and then where we actually are. And, and that song really addresses that in a beautiful way. And there's a beautiful moment in the song Cabaret, which is in and, and the world goes round. Cabaret is there. It's a different version than it is in the um, book musical Cabaret. And I love it so much because there are these beautiful harmonies. The arc of the song is a little bit different. It's familiar, but different enough to really sort of perk the ear up. And I, I love that moment in the show, too. I think it's a it's a stellar moment. You wrote, I think it's on the Stevens College website, that your favorite musicals or one of your favorite musicals is American Idiot based (laughs) on the band Green Day's 2004 concept album of the same name because you love grit. So I'm curious, (laughs) I'm curious in what way or even if your love of grit is satisfied by and the world goes round. It is because, you know, again, Kander and Eb are so brilliant because they give you this grit, but it's cloaked in a very palatable tune. And I love peeling back that onion and going, okay, so the music does this. And when you first listen to the lyrics and the tune and the rhythm, you think it's this. But when you really unpack the lyrics, it's actually this. It's most of the time, it really is representative of sort of the anchor, the grit, the groundedness, the earthiness of the human condition, and oftentimes of difficult choices made or choices in front of us or, um, you know, challenging situations of love or of loss or of wanting to move on and maybe being stifled for some reason or just of what it is to be in the world and what it is to move through the world because the world does indeed go round, (laughs) you know, it it carries on. And so I just think at the heart of their material is just a fundamental grit and earthiness and, and, um, realness that I love, but again, all the while cloaked in very palatable tunes (laughs) and it's, it's just a lot of fun. What, Let's listen to a little music from the show. Sure. What would be your favorite song to choose? You know, um, there's a fun song called Coffee in a Cardboard Cup, but there's also, of course, the iconic All That Jazz that I think everyone knows and loves. So I'll defer to you on this one. Okay, well, let's go with All That Jazz. So this is from the original 1991 cast recording of And the World Goes Round. Come on, babe, why don't we paint the town? And all that jazz, I'm gonna rouge my knees and roll my stockings down. And all that jazz, start the car, I know a be spot. Where the gin is cold, but the piano's hot. It's just a noisy hall where there's a nightly brawl and all that jazz. Slick your hair and wear your 
20 years in New York performing on Broadway, touring with shows. So you know musicals better than anyone, certainly better than me. But I have to say that this musical, to me, it doesn't, listen to the soundtrack, it doesn't really grab me musically. So tell me why you chose it for this season. You know, again, I think it's, um, we always want to Keep in mind, how will our students learn best? And um, I thought this was a great opportunity to explore Candor and Ebb in a way that that gave a lot of breadth and a lot of options. And these songs are incredibly actable. They're incredibly active songs in the way that um, there's a lot of forward momentum in the songs. There's a lot of deconstruction and analysis to be had. And the lyrics are just so smart and so multifaceted. Um, and I, I love giving that opportunity to the actors. And I really also thought that enough audience members would be familiar with some of Kendra Neb's shows that it might spark some interest, you know, for our patrons also. That's that's always the hope that you're marrying training with something appealing to our patrons. So, you know, I hope we've offered that in this Um we certainly like it and hope others do too. One of the things that you and I talked about last year when we chatted was how Broadway needs to change to represent diverse voices and stories. And that also needs to happen on stages across the country. And I am seeing a couple of instances, at least on Broadway, of them beginning to embrace a different set of stories. I mean, it's it's different when you're out in the country to a certain degree in that, you know, you are a college. It depends what students you have and what stories you are able to embrace given the student body. But how how are you embracing that call for diversity of different stories on your stages? You know, we, we continue to um, work to recruit a diverse student populace. We're really committed to that. I feel very committed to the fact that we want to tell the stories of the students that we have. And as we grow our program, we'll be able to tell more stories. So we're really, really committed at this point in time. And we are very open to unique casting. um, And we're very open to serving the student populace that we have while continuing to work to diversify that populace. Well, I look forward to seeing different stories on lots of different stages. Absolutely. Stevens College production of the Musical Review and The World Goes Round is opening at the Mecklenburg Theatre tonight with performances tomorrow and Saturday at 7.30 and a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. To find out more, go to stevens.edu forward slash box hyphen office. And Jennifer Hemphill, always a delight having you on the show. Let's do it again soon. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. 
When I first started working at the Columbia Art League back in 2007, a new gallery had recently opened on Broadway called Perlow Stevens, owned and run by Jennifer Perlow. A few years later, when Jennifer moved to Denver and the gallery had moved to Walnut Street, her former gallery director, Joel Sager, purchased the business and, with his business partner, Scott Browdis, it became the Sager Browdis Gallery. And last week, there was an exciting announcement. Joel Sager's longtime gallery director, Hannah Reeves, was going to take over as the new partner, and now it is the Sega Reeves Gallery. And Hannah Reeves is my guest this evening. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Thanks for having me. I could not be happier to see your name above the door as I have followed your career from university student to gallery That's curator for the, <laughs> for the Bingham Gallery, then to working with Joel to now being his business partner. How are you feeling about this new role and responsibility? Oh, at this point, we just get to take a deep breath. As you can probably imagine, a change like this is a long time in the making. And there's, you know, a lot of a lot of paperwork and a lot of details to tend. But in the end, you know, I have been really heavily involved here at the gallery for years. And what I do day to day doesn't need to change. We kind of just needed to get over the hump of the rebrand. And so we were really excited to finally get to make the announcement at the end of last week. Well, the first I knew about it was an allusion to the change on social media. So how long has this been in the works? I would say... Oh, several months. It just involves a whole series of decisions, of course, from everyone involved. I was a partial partner before, and so I was involved in some of that decision-making. And then really the three of us had to decide together how this was going to look. And so that was a months-long process. Um, the decision about the name and the new partnership has been in the last couple of months. And then, of course, our intrepid designer, Johnny, has been hard, hard at work trying to get all of the logos and the branding ready because our goal was for all of that to hit within a 24-hour period to really hit the public. That's actually remarkably hard to do, to have the announcements, you know, the press release go out, to have the physical stuff change, uh, the signage, the social media, the little favicons, every appearance of the logo on the website. So we had it all kind of locked and loaded. And then we really were trying to get it to land. And we were like, if it, if it happens within a 24 hour period, then our social media, <laughs> our website, all of that kind of hits, then we'll be happy. So yeah. Is your name above the door yet? I can't remember. I was there on Saturday, but I think it still said Sega Browdis. That is going to be the hardest part to change, just, you know, getting contractors up there and physically changing that sign above the door. So I think a new like temporary banner is going to be in uh, hopefully end of next week. So at least they will see the people will see the name change above the door. And then the final version of the signage, just, you know, somebody has to cut the little aluminum letters and there's some, you know, some additional steps involved. So that'll probably be the last thing that people will see flip over. Some cutting and pasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know Scott Browdis recently expanded his business interests, I think, to include the Pierpont General Store. And I'm sure there's only so much you can tell me about his departure as business partner from the gallery. So I'll settle for what can you tell me about Scott's departure? Scott is a person who always has multiple extremely enthusiastic interests. So I have no doubt that Pierpont is one of those. I think there are probably many others. 
if I know Scott, you know, and he's a person who needs to pursue something that is really exciting to him in the moment. And it was the time was right. You know, I was ready to to kind of move into a more pure sense of ownership, given what I already do here. And I think he was ready to pursue other interests. So I think what I can tell you for sure is that whatever he pursues, it will be with deep and full enthusiasm. So I expect to see great things. Even in good times, it is hard to make an art gallery financially successful in a small town. And I think Joel has been incredibly smart over the years in how he has expanded the gallery's revenue stream so that you are not only selling locally, but also nationally and internationally. The gallery can be rented as an event venue. You have a membership program. You find sponsors for the shows. But Scott was also a significant contributor to the financial well-being of the gallery. So I'm sure that's a facet of his department that you and Joel are working on. What plans are you putting into place to continue that financial security of the gallery? Mm -hmm. You know, to be honest, a lot of the budgetary changes that we needed to make, we needed to make because of the COVID era. Mm -hmm. And thinking about, you know, how we need to reframe how we think about our online interactions, which are more international, you know, than our in-person interactions. And during 2020, for example, our sales shifted from being 80% in person and 20% online to 20% in person and 80% online. So those kinds of changes also affect the overall budget and the set of revenue streams, not to mention that we couldn't have events for, you know, <laughs> over a year. So we were already in the process together of really reworking the budget and just rethinking it for what we think is a, going to be a new era. People are shopping differently now. And we know that our in-person presence is extremely important in the community. And that's something that we want to always continue to fund and to do, even when, you know, our revenue streams change such that more of our sales maybe come from outside of the community as, at a certain point. So we, this is something that we've really been kind of like so many small businesses, I think we're not unique, uh, rethinking and reworking for a while. And then the short answer to how does it work is, precisely what you mentioned, that there are a number of streams. We have clients all over the world that we connect with online. They are increasingly prepared to shop sight unseen, at least in person, but also everyone has gotten so much better at shopping online. We do a video chat. We send a little video. They see the front and the back. We know the dimensions, you know, and we're shipping it before you know it. So that has, you know, really picked up. Of course, we're still and now increasingly, again, working with people in person and selling art from the mid-century pieces, which are the more collectible, higher dollar pieces, to the contemporary works from living artists, both local and across the, you know, really around the world. Like you said, we're renting the venue now again, which is helpful. We have a membership program. We have sponsorships available. And so just that diversity of revenue streams and then just really thinking carefully about how we are stewards of everything that we get to do and get to carry is what we'll keep doing moving forward. You mentioned you're a mid-century artist and I want to ask you about that. I was in the gallery on Saturday and you are halfway through your October exhibit and you have works by local artists, Amy Meyer, Zoe Hawke, Madeleine Lemieux and Jesse Donovan. And in the East Gallery, 
you have a show of selected works by Lawrence Koopman, which explore, as you write in the gallery, the enormity of the microscopic realm, as well as our own tininess within the expanse of time and the universe. And they are really quite spellbinding. Tell us a little bit about these works and the artist. We love these pieces. Cooperman was based in Boston, but is a contemporary of the abstract expressionist, um, or at least really got his career going in the late 40s and 50s. But, you know, like so many of these artists who have long careers, can't be pigeonholed as, you know, just an abex painter. He was really kind of developing his own abstract style from the very beginning. The pieces that we have are from 1947 to 55. We love that era in American painting. His work is so unique because it seems to almost be a combination of, there are hints of surrealism. There's some color fields, big swashes of paint. Uh, There's really, truly microscopic feeling. Of course, you can see it, but, you know, these, these little tiny drawings atop these expansive feeling swaths of color and the combination of all that it is all abstract but it really gives you a sense of you could say sometimes of space or the universe or sometimes of like an underwater realm um but they're absolutely intriguing abstract works they are all works on paper we love that because in the big scheme of the art world you can find these wonderful original works on paper and they tend to still be valued a little lower than works on canvas. That is not always an indication about their quality. In fact, we just think this body of work is of just such amazing quality, but they're a lot more affordable than paintings of this size. They're kind of mid-size, 20 by 24, 22 by 28, around in there. And compared to works of the same era on canvas are really quite affordable. They're all in the range of about 15,000 retail price. So we love that for our collectors. We think that those kinds of works are going to go up in value over time. It's just, this is a really nice moment to own those. And we tend to love the tactility of paper too. A lot of these are unframed. So you actually get to see the artist, you know, watercolor tape that, you know, you can cover up with the matting later when you have it framed. But we just think it gives you this proximity to the work in an exhibit that is really lovely too. As you said, they're painted in that eight-year period between 1947 and 1955. And at, at a time when many artists' work was incorporating the angst of war and the post-war years, yet this work seems a mile away. It's lost in the world of science and fascination, like nothing global had happened. It was just he was looking at this paper and looking at the universe and looking down a microscope and, and creating these works. Does Kupferman have any similar contemporaries or was he really out on his own? Not that I know of. You know, he was teaching in Boston. He Almost his whole career was in Boston. So I'm sure that he was surrounded by peers who are also teaching in his department. But he really is pretty unique. Um, that's something that we really like about him. And there's also this, this bit of humility that we tend to like. We say like the underdogs of art history. Um, he's one of these guys who just kept his head down and just kept painting for decades and decades. Didn't attain a lot of fame, but he made a living. And we always think that that's interesting, too, because a lot of times those are the stories that haven't been widely told, and it it feels really neat to discover them. Where have these works been for the past 40 years, and how did you come by them? 
They have mostly been in the artist estate. So sometimes if, a, if an artist is not especially self-promoting or especially represented, they basically just hold their work until they die. And then sometimes it gets tied up even longer after that, you know, in the estate, or it may pass immediately to a dealer. But this is one of those intact sets of things that really just passed from the artist's studio. That's exciting to us because it means they haven't been on the walls yet. You know, we get to debut these things that are decades and decades old. That's just, it's so historic and neat. Um, but it also meant for us that we got to really look through a large quantity and pick the pieces that we thought were the best and the best combination to bring here, which is really interesting. So a lot of times for exhibits like this, when we're showing mid-century work, we are kind of looking for those people whose estates got tucked away or stayed intact. They haven't blown up yet. And that means that you don't have to pay $3 million for a painting. (laughs) (laughs) Always a bonus. Uh (laughs) Before we close, I know you have the annual master's exhibit coming up in December and I definitely want to revisit this with you nearer the time but give us a little overview about this year's master's show. Well this is timely because the work just arrived last Friday and you may have seen if you were in Saturday you may have seen this. I did. Because we had to do some figuring out. There are some enormous yeah just spectacular pieces that we really had to like oh, where are we going to put this? We're excited to have them early because it means that we can photograph them really well and house, we can do a a beautiful catalog and and you have the work here to preview a little bit sooner. It's work by two mid-century and beyond painters, John Little and Jack Roth. They're both names that we have introduced in previous master's exhibits, starting with abstract expressionism a few years ago. And so I think people will feel familiar, but the way that we're able to focus this time, we got to dig into the estates. We got to find some of those pieces, again, that have been tucked away, that haven't even been seen yet by these fabulous painters, pull them out and basically create a mini retrospective from each of these painters with kind of parallel lives, long careers, military service, coming back doing this post-war painting era, right in the, the thick of, you know, abstract expressionism, but then just, again, plugging away and continuing to make thousands of paintings each from which we got to pull these selections. It is abstract work. It spans the latter half of the 20th century, and it really is spectacular. We have two of the the biggest, physically biggest pieces we've ever managed to get in the door, and that was the project. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Sega Reeves Gallery will be showing selected works from Lawrence Kupferman until October the 30th, and the Master's Exhibit opens on December the 3rd. You can see all the works that are on display in the gallery on their website at sagareevesgallery.com. And Hannah Reeves, congratulations on becoming the new partner in the gallery and for taking time to chat this evening. Thank you so much. My pleasure. that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, actor and director Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri and actor and playwright Julia Varlin. Columbia Art League's Executive Director, Kelsey Hammond, Stephen College's Dean of Performing Arts, Jennifer Hemphill, 
and gallery director and new partner of the Sega Reeves Gallery, Hannah Reeves. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!